0: So, if you would, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, if you were to just sort of try to open your Bible and like try to find the center, you'd get real close to Isaiah. So, Isaiah chapter 6, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, that's page 789. Isaiah 6, holy ground in the scripture. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. Reveal yourself to us the way you really are. Correct our false notions of who you are. We want to know you for who you really are. So I pray we would learn about you in a beautiful way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Question, how would you react to a true vision of God? If your eyes could look upon the throne room in heaven for just a few moments, what would that do to you? How would you react to that? Well, if it were a true vision, if you were meeting God for real, you would react just like Isaiah the prophet does in this chapter. Isaiah the prophet gets a true vision of the Lord. He writes about it, and he tells us, his reaction. What he says in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah writing says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. What an experience. We're told in verse 1 that Isaiah received this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. So that would be 740 BC. And that little detail gives us insight into how Isaiah and the rest of the Jewish people were feeling before he got This vision. King Uzziah was an awesome, awesome king. He was a wise king, a godly king. He was respected by everyone in the kingdom of Judah, he was respected on the world stage. He led the kingdom of Judah in prosperity, peace, security, just a wonderful, godly king. And that king actually began to reign at the age of 16 and reigned 52 years until his death at the age of 68. Think of that. Half a century of godly leadership. Presiding over a wonderful nation that's enjoying peace and prosperity. Man, when King Uzziah died, people were unsettled. People mourned. Isaiah probably felt that way. Oh, who's going to reign next? We also know that King Uzziah's death was untimely, and his circumstances of his death were tragic. As good a king as he was, right at the end he blew it. Right at the end. King Uzziah decided that he was going to go inside the holy place of the temple and burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, kings were not allowed to do that. That's a big no-no. Only priests are allowed. But somehow King Uzziah thought he was above the law. So he went in. The priests followed him in and said, get out of here. He turned around and he got mad at the priests. And you know what? The Lord got mad at him and struck him down with leprosy. And Uzziah was confined to a small house in isolation for the rest of his life until he died. So it was a disappointing end. Isaiah was probably disappointed. How could this great king fail like that at the end? So he's kind of traumatized by all those events along with the nation. And that's his mindset when he gets this vision. And this vision of the Lord would have been so encouraging to him. God is saying to Isaiah, A great king may have left his throne on earth, but the greatest of all kings is still seated on the throne in heaven. Good human leaders come and go. Good human leaders, even the best of them, can disappoint. But the Lord is always in charge. Amen? Amen. On the throne. And Isaiah needed to be reminded of that. By the way, it's very, very unwise for you to put all of your hopes and dreams in a human leader, to get all caught up in maybe a politician or a a godly Christian leader. Now, we need good leadership and we should support good leadership. But as Christians, we're to keep our eyes on the Lord because he never leaves the throne. We're told in Psalm 118, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. May we never take our eyes off the Lord. And I think sometimes the Lord stirs the pot, removes some Uzziahs from our life, things that we're depending on, so we'll look at him. And oh how we need to have a constant vision of God. So, 740 BC. Isaiah a bit distraught. He's in the temple courts of the temple in Jerusalem. And he gets this vision. In this vision, he's transported up into the heavenly throne room of God. And all oh, the things he saw there. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. I always picture a bright, white-hot, blazing throne with a white, radiating figure on the throne. He saw God on the throne high and lifted up. His robe, his majestic robe and glorious robe, the whole train... Fills the whole temple. There's these heavenly angelic creatures called seraphim standing above the throne, hovering, flying about. They're saying to each other over and over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew word for seraph means to burn, these are like living flames. One person described them as living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. Flying about this throne room. Just one of the seraphim speaks. And the doorposts shake. It's very loud in heaven. It's gloriously loud. And he says as he's looking in the heavenly throne room it becomes filled with smoke. No doubt the Shekinah glory cloud of God. What a scene. Try to picture this in your mind, and as much as you try, it does not do justice to what it must have actually been like. Can you picture that scene? What characteristics... Do we see about the Lord from this vision? Well, He's powerful. He's glorious. He's majestic. We also see His sovereignty. God is sovereign. He's sitting on the throne, He's actively reigning over all things. The angels say the whole earth is full of His glory. The entire universe is an extension of God's glory from his heavenly throne room. He fills every aspect. He sees everything. And he reigns over all. The sovereignty of God. We also see an attribute of God here in this vision that most theologians refer to as the primary attribute of God. And that would be his holiness. God is holy. The seraphim. They keep repeating to each other over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. John the apostle got a vision of the throne room in Revelation chapter 4. And there he sees these creatures that are probably the cherubim and it says night and day they do not rest saying holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come god is holy and this is the only attribute of god that is repeated like this 3 times holy 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 you never God is love 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 or grace 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 or Just, 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 though he is all those things. Primarily he is holy, 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 complete holiness, supreme holiness. This word holy means to be completely set apart. Consecrated, separate, unique, other. That's God. Other. Unique in His power, unique in His love, unique in justice, unique in His wisdom. And unique, absolutely unique in purity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is sinless, perfection, absolutely pure. That's God. That's what the angels are taken with about him in the throne room. You know, we can't even understand really... God's holiness. You can't comprehend it. A.W. Tozer famously said, Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. He says, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness... By thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom. But his holiness, you can't even imagine. When you meet God for real, it's the holiness of God that impacts you. In fact, let me say it like this. When you meet God for real, his holiness terrifies you. He's so pure, so other. So, how did Isaiah react? We'll look at verse five. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at that reaction. Woe is me, I'm undone. Very strong in the Hebrew language. Woe is me, I am destroyed. I'm wrecked. I'm laid waste. He falls on his face. Woe is me. Why does he do that? Because in the presence of a holy God, you become painfully aware of your sinfulness. You become painfully aware of your unholiness. Isaiah drops to his knees on his face. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man. Of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Oh. When you meet God for real, that happens. When you really meet God, you'll be taken with his holiness and struck in by your unholiness. It happens all the time in the scripture when folks meet and encounter the living God. Here it happens with Isaiah. Job, remember him? He said this when he saw the Lord. I've heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Job. I can't stand myself. Peter, when he recognized who Jesus was, when he was starting to recognize that Jesus was not just a man, and after Jesus had done a miracle In Luke five, it says Simon Peter saw it, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, "Depart from me; I'm a sinful man. Woe is me." John the apostle he got a vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, and you want to know how he reacted? He said, "When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." You agonize. You fall flat. You know, every now and then, I hear some foolish unbeliever say, Well, if there's really a God, I can't wait to meet him, and I'm going to tell him a thing or two. (laughs) Oh, shut up. (laughs) You're a little gnat flying too close to the sun. God is holy. We are sinful. Isaiah dropped. By the way, it's very important that you notice that Isaiah identified with his own sinful people. He says in verse 5, Woe is me, I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You know what Isaiah is saying there? He's saying, In your holy presence, Lord, I am a sinner like everyone else. Now, you would have to think that Isaiah lived a much better life than most people. He's a man of God. He's a prophet. Some Bible scholars argue pretty effectively that Isaiah was a priest who had access into the temple. He was probably a lot more moral than everyone else. And if he were to compare himself to somebody else, he might say, yeah, I'm better. But... That's the comparison that we need to avoid. Because the comparison that matters is how you stand before God. God is holy. He's the standard. Not your neighbor. Job, you remember. One of the most righteous men who ever lived. And in the presence of God, he said, I hate myself. Peter and John, those were two of the twelve apostles. They dropped dead before the face of God. So it'd be very unwise for you to compare yourself with others. Thinking that that will get you in with the Lord. It won't. You are to compare yourself with God's perfection and his holiness. And by that standard, we're all wrecks, right? We don't even come close. I've always loved that illustration about swimming to Hawaii. You know, the island of Hawaii, it's about 2,500 miles away from the coast of California. Nobody's going to swim to Hawaii in one setting. I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. You might be an Olympic swimmer, a seasoned veteran Ironman swimmer. You're going to drown if you try to swim to Hawaii. The gap's too far. So in that sense, you're really no different than the staggering drunk who passes out on the shores and drowns in six inches of water. Both die. Both are separated. Same way in our relationship with God. You might live a better life than other people. But the gap between who you are and the holiness of God is much too wide. And by his standards, we're all sinful. And if you are to be saved... If you genuinely meet God for real, you'll be broken over that. Crushed by it. In anguish over your sin. Hugh Caron and John Mulder have written a book entitled Conversions. And in this book, they cite the verbatim testimonies of spiritual leaders from the Apostle Paul to Charles Colson with such notables as Augustine, Calvin, Bunyan, Wesley, Spurgeon, Tolstoy, William Booth, Schweitzer, C.S. Lewis, and Thomas Merton. In the book, they use this very vision that we're studying this morning. To study the state that every one of those guys was in before they were saved. It says... Every conversion they studied, there is agony of soul, the stab of conscience, the shame of inward uncleanness, the remorse for sin, the sensation of being lost and alone. When John Bunyan, for instance, got a glimpse of the holiness of God, he reported that he felt like a child falling into a well pit. Sprawled in the water at the bottom of the pit, he could find no handhold or foothold to lift himself out. He felt that he would die in that condition. Soren Kierkegaard describes himself as a rower in a boat who has tried to save himself by rowing against the stream that runs toward God. Finally, in exhaustion, he drops the oars and feels himself spinning out of control down to the falls below. Every soul must hit that. Do you meet God for real? You'll be taken with his holiness, stricken with the sense of your unholiness, and broken by it. Has that happened to you? Have you ever reached that place? You know, as as agonizing as that place is, it's the best place you can be. Because when you get there, you cry out for God. And he'll save you. Look what happens with Isaiah. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim. Flew to me. Having in his hand a live coal. Which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And said behold this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Isaiah in the presence of the lord sees his holiness becomes aware of his sin falls on his face god help woe is me and god moves to forgive isaiah of his sin to purge him to atone his sin one of the seraphim one of those flaming angels goes to the altar, the altar is where sacrifices take place gets a live coal from the altar in some tongs, flies to Isaiah, touches his mouth with that white hot live coal he's cleansed he's purged he's atoned for and notice. That the atonement of sin requires violence. A violent act. From an altar meant for sacrifice. A hot coal touching the tender lips of somebody's mouth. The Lord made it possible for Isaiah to be forgiven. The Lord had the solution. Only the fire of God can take away our guilt. And only the white heat of a live coal from his altar can atone for our sins. So you understand that. When you bow before the Lord in that agony and you cry out. He's the one who can save you and only him. By means of sacrifice. This is certainly one of the best pictures of Christian salvation that you find in the entire Bible. What we must see in the context of the whole Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. He went to the place of sacrifice. His dying love is the only power that can awaken people as dead to God as we are. We're all sinful. God in his love and grace gave his son. Jesus, the holy one, the perfect one without sin, spotless lamb of God left heaven, came to earth. And you talk about an act of violence and sacrifice. The son of God offered himself. He went to the cross. He experienced all that physical suffering. But the worst suffering that he experienced was when our sin was placed upon him. And he died in our place. It's been said Christ took the heat for us. He took the fiery judgment of God on our behalf. And then he rose again that third day. And he's alive. And he is the only way that you can be saved or forgiven and have your sins atoned for. You must recognize God in his holiness. You must see yourself in your sinfulness. You must be broken for it. You must cry out to God. You must acknowledge the solution that the Lord has provided. And you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And your sins will be atoned for. It is supernatural. And it is radical. I've seen a lot of people get saved. I've been able to have the joy of leading people to Christ. And I'll tell you what. When that light goes on and they realize that they can be forgiven and they receive Christ. A lot of them will... they'll talk about it as, you know, I I was carrying this great weight everywhere I went, this guilt, and all of a sudden it was lifted off. A lot of folks talk about before they come to Christ, they were blind, they couldn't see. They come to Christ and now they can see. Philosopher Blaise Pascal had a life-changing encounter with God in 1654, and he used one word in his journal to describe the experience. In bold capital letters, he wrote in his journal the word FIRE. Fire. The old me was burned away. God touched me. Purged me. Have you had that experience? Have you received Christ? This is the process that every soul must go through when meeting God for real. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, how happy are those who mourn. Why? They shall be comforted. That first step is to mourn, to be poor in spirit, to humble yourself before God, to acknowledge who you are in His presence, and then receive Him. Has that happened to you? Notice what happens next in this vision, verse 8. He says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Interesting, we have the doctrine of the Trinity right there on display in verse 8, don't we? Whom shall I send, who will go for us? God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, having a discussion amongst themselves. We have a job to do. There's something that needs to be accomplished. Whom shall we send? And what does Isaiah do? Send me. Here I am. And the language in the Hebrew is very passionate. Literally, behold me, look at me, Lord. Send me, like the enthusiasm of a first grader who knows the answer to a question, right? Oh, teacher, pick me. I'll go. You've been so good to me. You've changed me. I'm available. Please notice the fire that purged Isaiah was also the fire that ignited Isaiah. For service. And that's how you will know if you've really met God for real. You'll come before Him, broken. You'll respond to salvation. He'll change you. You'll know it. And you will have the same attitude as Isaiah Here am I, send me. I'm available. I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. I'll go where you send me. Even if that means going across the seas or across the street, around the block or around the office. I'm yours. Send me. Here I am. I'll follow you. That should happen. When you recognize what God has done, when you recognize the change that he's made in your life, it can't help but motivate to be passionate in your service unto him and wanting others to make, to know who the Lord is and what's happened in your life. Someone said, God's word is go. Something great has happened to you, so Go. share here am I send me a very clever Bible teacher split this whole vision up into three words woe low go In relationship to God, have you had the woe experience yet? Woe is me. Have you responded to the low of the Lord? The Lord says, "Lo, come unto me. I'll forgive you. I'll purge you. And then after you get saved, the Lord says to us, go. Woe, low go where are you in that progression where are you my brother and sister in Christ have you forgot that you need to go that you're a changed man you're a changed woman you have a responsibility now to to go and let others know and be that witness that you need to be right where you're at Are you here this morning and you haven't experienced the woe yet? I'd like you to have an opportunity to do so. Right now, would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, we marvel at your holiness. We can't comprehend it. And we truly can't comprehend how we could be made right with you. We're so below. We're so sinful. And by your love and grace and mercy, you provided the way. You took our sin. You paid for our sin. at a great cost, the greatest cost in all of history. And you've made us holy and righteous. You've covered us in the righteousness of your son. You've washed away our sins. I pray that you would ignite us as your people for service. That we would see the privilege and responsibility of representing you well. And we would have that same passion and enthusiasm that Isaiah had. Oh, Lord, send me. And then, Lord, I want to pray for anyone here this morning. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. Have you ever, I mean, maybe you've spent a lot of time comparing yourself to other people, but have you spent any time comparing yourself to the Lord? That's the only comparison that matters. And in comparison to God, you are so sinful. We all are. Have you admitted that? Not to me, not to anybody else, but have you admitted that to God? Have you fallen before him? And then asked him to save you, to forgive you based on what he does. That's the essence of Christian salvation. You asking the Lord to forgive you of all your sins. You doing that directly. Have you done that? I want you to have an opportunity right now to do that. It'll change your life forever. If that's you, just in the quietness of your heart, you just, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I readily admit that I fall so far short from your holiness, from your righteousness. Woe is me. But I thank you for your love and grace in sending your son. I believe you died on the cross for me and I receive you right now. Purge me. Tone for me. Change me. And make me yours, Amen.